Everybody awake? Okay, now they are, now that my voice comes booming over the speakers, right? I would venture to guess that most of us in this room, maybe not all of us, but most of us in this room have been saved. And some of us have been saved so long that we might tend to take for granted what it took to save us. Not so much in the sense that we don't appreciate the cross and the resurrection, but in the sense that we sometimes forget that we were all in the same state before trusting in Christ for our salvation. We were dead in our sins. We were unable to respond without the work of God changing our hearts. Salvation is always a miraculous story. Miraculous in the sense of real miracles. In other words, something that only God can do. We contribute nothing to our salvation but our sinful state and our need to be saved. We were all rebellious, wicked, proud, sinful. That's good news, huh? But God's grace captured us in that sinful state. Our dead hearts were set to beating again. Our hearts of stone were turned into hearts of flesh, finally able to respond to his grace. This is all of us. So the focus of salvation always starts not with what we decided, but with what God has already done for us. That's very clear in Jesus' discourse in John chapter 6, verses 32 to 71. We're not going to read that whole section this morning, but we'll try to make some important connections between key themes in this passage. I want to start this morning with John chapter 6, verse, beginning with verse 39, reading through verse 44. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. I've thought often about Jesus' statement here in verse 44, in the midst of his speaking about being the bread of life. Verse 44 again says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now the words, no one, is a very inclusive statement, to use a modern-day motto. Very inclusive. It shuts all of us up under the very same predicament. Unless God draws us to Jesus, unless God reaches out to us, unless he initiates this, interaction and implants in us the understanding of his grace and his mercy and the understanding of our sinfulness, understanding of our need for that grace, followed by the gift of repentance. Note that it's a gift, meaning that it's given to us, not something we can earn or deserve. But unless God initiates all these things in our hearts, we cannot come. We are totally incapable of coming to Jesus, to the one who did the work of our salvation on the cross and trusting in that work for our salvation. We can't do it. We're not able. Most of us have a story about how we came to Christ. And those stories are all different. 
But this is the common denominator of all of our stories. No one comes to Jesus for salvation unless God does the drawing. Now when I began first studying for and praying about this message this morning, being the milestone and remembrance guy that I am, I'm always remembering important and sometimes simple events in my life. My wife teases me about that sometimes. I remember uh, those important events in the lives of people I love as well. I recalled a very significant milestone in my own life. Fifty years ago this month, in living when I was living in this house in Batavia, New York, I met the girl next door. Now some of you may be thinking, gee, isn't that sweet? Bill met the girl next door. It was Barb 50 years ago, but no, it wasn't Barb. <laughs> I met her three years later. The girl next door then was named Cindy. I was out shooting baskets in my driveway on St. Patrick's Day, 1973. I remember that precisely for a very specific reason, because Notre Dame had just lost in overtime in the NIT championship game, and being a fighting Irish fan, after all, I was a junior at Notre Dame High School in Batavia, New York, and I was raised very Catholic. Here's a couple pictures from one of my uh, visits in 2005 to my old high school. But because I was frustrated with this devastating loss, I went outside to work out my frustrations and disappointment on the basketball court by vicariously making that last second shot that my Irish couldn't make. And I did make it, by the way. Now, we had lived in this house in Batavia since the previous summer, and I had noticed the family next door, but I'd never met them to this point. This day, while I was shooting baskets, the girl next door was also outside, so I worked up my courage, and I went over and I introduced myself to her. Just so happens, just so happens, and as we move along, you'll see that it wasn't an accident of circumstance at all, but it just so happens that this girl was a Christian. Just so happens that her dad was president of the local chapter of Full Gospel Businessmen. Just so happens that this would be the beginning of a few months where I was confronted with my need for salvation and eventually came to trust in Christ alone for my salvation. But even before that, God had been preparing my heart for this turn of events in my life, for that moment on St. Patrick's Day that he would use and multiply and carry forward. In other words, he had already begun to draw me to himself. Just a month or so before I met the girl next door, a fellow basketball player in high school, a friend of mine, was killed in a car wreck. Now his younger brother was an even closer friend, and I remember going to the funeral home for visitation and later to the funeral mass and not having a clue what to think or to say to my friend. I'd been to many funerals before, including my own grandfather's funeral, and I even served at funerals as an altar boy. But I never pondered the significance of the question, what happens when I die? And if there is a heaven, which at that point I pretty much believed there was, why should I expect to go there? So God had already set in motion the events which would lead me to trust in Christ alone and not my Catholic faith, and not my pretty good behavior. So I was reminded of these things in my own life as I read this passage of Scripture and began preparing this message for this morning. I was reminded that in eternity past, think about this, in eternity past, I already had my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 
Again, Jesus said in John 6:39, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Notice that. But raise it up on the last day. All that God had given Jesus included all of us here this morning who are in Christ. Regardless of what you may think about salvation theology, all of us have to think about and maybe wrestle with what we make of the many passages of Scripture that tell us that we are chosen, that we are predestined, we are the elect. Here's just a couple of those passages. First from Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then we see another one of those words. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which has, he has blessed us in the beloved. And we read in Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also, there it is again, predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Think about this. What an amazing thing. This is part of that amazing grace that we sing about. We were chosen, those of us who are in Christ, we were chosen before the foundation of the world. We were predestined for adoption as his children. We were among those, as Jesus said in John chapter 6, that God had given to Jesus that he said he would never lose. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds of how all this works in our salvation. That's more time than we have this morning. We might be here till next week. I don't want to debate Calvinism versus Arminianism. But for the purpose of this particular message, what I want to do is just leave it at what Scripture tells us in these and many other passages that we didn't read and what it says to us here in Jesus' own words in John. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is amazing grace at work. This is what God has done in the lives of those of us who have trusted Christ for his for our salvation. Now today, I hope that we consider the implications of being what it means to be drawn to the bread of life and how that has happened for each of us. Maybe some of us now are even remembering our own stories, even as I've shared part of mine. And the fact that it starts and it is completed by Christ alone. We can stir up the joy of our salvation. That's one of the things I'm hoping to accomplish this morning. Stir up the joy of our salvation. What an amazing thing. Help us see what an amazing, marvelous, supernatural work of God it is that I am in his kingdom. That he saved me. That he ordered my life circumstances to draw me to himself. Now, I tend to think of it this way. I recognize that God chose me, but then I think, wow, why me? Why me? Now, we usually ask that question, at least in ourselves, related to bad things sometimes, don't we? Why me, Lord? Why am I experiencing this hard thing or this illness 
or this disaster, this trial in my life. But do we think this question sometimes in the context of, why wouldn't he save me? Why not me? Well, I was kind of there when I was 16 years old and nearing the end of my junior year in high school and the day that I met that girl next door. And God began moving me from that moment inexorably toward Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Now, I got to tell you, I was a really good kid. I was a good kid. I never gave my parents a minute's trouble. I look around here and I know a lot of you really did. But I wasn't one of those. I never smoked. I never drank. I never did drugs. I never had sex before my wedding night. I never stayed out too late, despite the opportunities to do all these things. And I was respectful toward my parents and other authorities in my life. Now look at this saintly, angelic, second grade Billy with his first communion suit on, huh? In the Catholic context, at least, I was very savable, or so I thought. I was like Paul. Paul said, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. Or in my case, I was a Catholic of Catholics. If there were such a thing, I had all the credentials to be saved. I was an altar boy. I even wanted to be a priest when I was younger, but that was, of course, before I discovered girls and that they weren't the icky thing that boys, younger boys tend to think they are. And then, of course, priests can't be married. So much for the priesthood. I went to Mass every week. I went to Catholic grade school, St. Mary's. I went to Catholic high school, Notre Dame. How Catholic can you get? Huh? But you know what? I was lost. I was lost, and I was a sinner, and I was self-righteous, and I didn't even know it. I didn't understand that none of those things I was counting on would save me. I didn't understand the gospel, which begins with all have sinned. So God drew me to Jesus. He set in motion these circumstances, this set of circumstances that to the spiritually untrained eye might look like, Wow, what a bunch of coincidences. But in reality, and in God's perfect plan, they were planned and purposed for me before there was time. We've all heard the saying, there but for the grace of God go I, right? We've heard that. But do we really believe that? Or are we like I was, a 16-year-old, goody-two-shoes Catholic boy, thinking if God could save anybody, or if anybody really deserves to be saved, it would be me. Are we really and truly amazed at the tremendous quantity of grace and mercy that God has freely poured out on us? Now, many people here have been saved even longer than I have. I'm looking at 50 years. Some of you have been saved longer. Many more still can count their salvation history in decades even, if not half centuries, goodness, like me. Now, still others here were raised in the church, baptized at an early age here at TCF, and have never really known a time when they didn't consider themselves a Christian. But all of us, whatever, wherever we might fit into these categories that I just mentioned, are saved by Christ from eternal damnation the same way. No one, Scripture tells us, comes to Jesus unless God moves in such a way in our lives so as to draw us to him. So the circumstances are different, and it may look different for each of us, but it's the same God who does the drawing. Now the word draw here 
is an interesting word. It's used here to indicate the kind of influence from God that makes a particular result certain. It changes our inclination from one of unbelief to the ability to believe. When it says before draw that no one can come, it has to do with ability. In other words, no one is able. No one has the power to come to Christ unless God exerts the influence of drawing them to Christ. We are so captured before Christ. We are so captured by our sin and unbelief that unless God draws us, we are hopeless. And that applied to me in my Catholic goodness as a 16-year-old boy and before that. That applied to Gordon in his Hindu drug-dealing days. It applied to James Manchester when he was in jail as a young man for drugs too, I think, right, James? Yep. Okay, worse than that. That applied to Jim Garrett, who as a young man was probably at least outwardly at least as much of a goody-two-shoes as I was before the Lord drew him to Christ. It applies just as much to Bo Thorpe, to Faith Feathers, to Caleb Clutter, to name just a few of the many of our young people in this church that I could name, all of whom have lived exemplary lives of compliance with parental authority and caused their parents not a moment of trouble. All of us, without exception, must have the influence of God in our hearts to draw us. Now, I think the clarity of Matthew Henry is helpful here, if you can work through the old English. In the depraved soul of fallen man, there is a rebellion of the will against the right dictates of the understanding, a carnal mind, which is enmity, enmity itself to the divine light and law. It is therefore requisite that there be a work of grace wrought upon the will, which is here called drawing. No man in this weak and helpless state can come to Christ without it. As we cannot do any natural action without the concurrence of common providence, so we cannot do any action morally good without the influence of special grace, in which the new man lives and moves and has its being as much as the mere man has in the divine providence. Now Jesus said, uh, just a few verses before verse 44 where it speaks of drawing that the Father had given. And again, that's past tense. Those whom Jesus would raise to eternal life. So from all eternity, God the Father had determined that the work of God, the Son, would not be in vain. So God determined that he wouldn't just make salvation possible and then cross his holy fingers. Gee, I hope this happens. Hope that someone will take advantage of what I've done, of the salvation that Jesus purchased through the cross. He instead determined that those he chose, he would draw. So no one has the power or ability to come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. When we think about drawing people, we tend to think of flies and honey. We tend to think of trying to woo, entice, persuade. But though there are scholarly differences of opinion on what draw means here, I think it's stronger than just enticing, luring or attracting. Maybe it's a lot like James pulling these Bible Bowl kids, huh? This is from Bible Bowl this last semester. And James took on the, the kids that were there in the tug of war. And there's his victory right here, you'll see. Ta-da! Right? One scholar says the word actually means compel. Another notes that the same Greek word was used to speak of drawing water from a well. Of course, 
you don't think of dragging or compelling water out of a well, do you? But you also don't entice or woo water out of the well. You don't stand at the top of the well and say, here, water, 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 come on, hop in my pail, right? You don't say that. Of course you don't. You have to go get it. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. So I'm going to chicken out this morning. Instead of making a really strong stand on what draw means here, I'm just going to think, and so I'm just going to say, that I think draw here may be somewhere between God's gentle voice calling us to trust Christ and a very much more forceful, compelling voice saying we must be born again. Breaking that heart of stone that we all have apart from Christ and changing it to a heart of flesh. To those of us here this morning who are in Christ, this is what happened to us. We were drawn. This is what happened to us. It happened to you. He brought you. He drew you to the bread of life who came down from heaven. So let's never take any credit for being good enough to save. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Let's never boast about anything other than what God has so mercifully done for us. Removing the blinders from our eyes, giving us the capacity, the ability, the power, if you will, to hear the Word of God, to hear the truth of the Gospel, seeing the amazing grace of our Savior. We can't do that apart from the empowering. We can't even understand Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, foolishness. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is true of all of us. Apart from Christ, we are natural persons, as it says in this verse. And the gospel seems foolish. We're not able to understand, let alone accept, the truth of the gospel. No one in the world has the spiritual or moral ability to come to Jesus unless God gives him or her the desire, the inclination to come, and the ability to place our trust in Christ alone as our source of eternal salvation. So, again, my first hope here is that this will restore the joy of our salvation. It will help us see what an amazing, marvelous thing. But I have another purpose this morning that I want to uh, explore here. There's another implication of this reality that no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him that I think we should look at here this morning. Later in John chapter 6, same chapter we're in, Jesus actually repeated this statement, no one comes to the Father except, uh, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. But he repeated it in a little bit different way. Let's read starting from verse 64 of John 6. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. So there he is repeating the same idea. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. and We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There are some of you who do not believe, is what Jesus said. 
I think this is what many of us sometimes think when we hear the idea in both verses 44 and 65 that God must draw us to Christ, that no one can come to Jesus unless it's granted, gifted by the Father. And I've got to tell you, my brothers and sisters, this is a prayer that I pray every day for those family members, for those friends and others. God, please draw them to Jesus. These people I love are lost. God, I ask you to do what only you can do. Draw them into your kingdom. I remind the Lord of what is spoken in Scripture. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, so God, please save their souls. It's the cry of all of us who believe the gospel, which includes salvation, but that gospel includes a difficult reality of the separation of the unredeemed from the redeemed into eternal death in hell of the case of the unredeemed and eternal life for the redeemed. It's the express purpose of our monthly uh, women's prayer for descendants to pray this way as women from our church gather to pray for family members who are wandering or far from Christ. God is a God who pursues us. That's good news too. God pursues us. He's faithful to pursue us. He's faithful to draw us into a relationship with him and he'll not give up in our lifetime. He'll give us every chance to accept his gift of eternal life through Christ. I remember past messages from this pulpit about how we need to persevere in prayer for our unsaved loved ones. I remember a message on the weapons of God's love. In other words, how many different means, tactics, strategies, some pleasant, some not so pleasant, he will do to get our attention, to bring us to the point of decision, to the point of receiving or rejecting the grace of God available as a free gift through our Lord Jesus Christ. I used to get really excited about the opportunity to be with unsaved family members. I figured with my winning personality, with my powers of persuasion, with the justice of my cause, people would get saved left and right. And I'd see my entire family come to Christ in just a visit or two. But through the years, and through many missed opportunities, blown opportunities, or more often just lack of opportunities, some of these visits have become more and more difficult for me as I see the continued lostness of people that I love. Thinking about these things, I remembered this verse, John 6:44. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And then kind of in rapid succession, I recalled these other verses. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, God our Savior wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And just a few verses later, in verse 15 of chapter 3, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. God reminded me of something that he's spoken to me many times before. He said, don't you know that I love these people more than you ever could? Don't you think I'm working even now to draw them? Don't you know that my kindness, my patience, is one of the weapons of love, my love for them at work in their lives, and that I will pursue their hearts until the day they die? Now, these verses emphatically do not mean that everyone is saved. And the sad truth is that there may be some of my loved ones who will never accept God's gift 
of life in Christ. But God reminded me of several things, that his love for them is perfect, unlike mine. His love for them means he'll pursue them. His love for them is so much greater than mine. And his plans and purposes for them are far above and beyond what my meager love and concern for them could ever accomplish. He also reminded me of what I've thought of in the past as the salvation continuum. It's that line of which, along which everybody in the world kind of walks. And if we were to picture it this way, I think it'll help us in considering this topic of God drawing people to himself. Not just our loved ones, but other ones we pray for, other ones we witness to, people in our lives. So over here, you may have the person who's really far from God. You can probably picture that person in your mind right now by their behavior, by their attitudes, by the things they say and do, right? And over here, you have that person who's near to the kingdom. But in between, you have all kinds of other people, don't you? who for many reasons are somewhere along the path. Some are walking in the right direction. Some are not. And others are just kind of spinning in place. Now this mental picture is not just speculation on my part. I don't want to build a whole theology around this one verse. But Jesus said in Mark 12, 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Speaking of a man that had answered wisely to a question he had asked. There's also the psalm that says, uh, Psalm 119, salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek out your decrees. Another translation of this verse says, the wicked are far from salvation because they do not bother with your principles. To me, the implication in these verses is clear. You can be close to the kingdom, you can be close to coming to Christ, or you can be far from receiving Jesus' gift of eternal life for you. And of course, many, most maybe, perhaps, are somewhere in between these two extremes. What God has reminded me is that much of the time, especially in the lives of family and friends that we see only occasionally, we don't know where someone is along this continuum. We don't know what God has been doing to draw this person toward him. We know that he's doing something because his word tells us that his desire is none would perish, that all would come to everlasting life. So God will do everything he can to accomplish that desire. So while we tend to glorify those who reap the harvest, in other words, those who actually have the joy of seeing a person get saved, I think it's important that we see that a person make that commitment to Christ, that decision to follow Jesus, and that none of those decisions would have been possible if others before had not been equipped by God and faithful to be his instruments in either plowing the ground or planting seed, the planting the seed of the gospel, watering the plant, and all the other things that happen between a person being far from God on the one hand and getting to the point where they are made able by God to believe and receive, trusting in his gift of eternal life. Do you ever ponder the greatness, the power of God in orchestrating every individual life to the point where in our own free will we interact with people in such a way that his purposes are accomplished? That's an amazing thing. That's better than any healing miracle you could ever think of, that God is in charge and that these are the things he does to draw people to himself. We have this vast inter-networking mass of humanity whose circles of influence overlap one another to move people along that path toward him. 
to accomplish his purposes, big and small, on the earth. Did you ever think about that? I think about that a lot. Jim Garrett has described it as God being the chess master. He, moves, he sees all the moves. He moves the pieces around. All of our loved ones are somewhere along that salvation continuum. God knew exactly the state of my heart on uh, St. Patrick's Day, 1973, when he brought the girl next door and her Christian family into my life. He knew when I was ready, when I was ripe for harvest. He knew that. And in his wisdom, I believe he orchestrated it all to bring me to him. He planned the circumstances to draw me to himself. It's a reminder to me to not only, as we've already mentioned, rejoice in my salvation. What an amazing thing this is. And to hang on to God's word to us, no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. But it's also a reminder to me that because God's desire is that none should perish, but all should come to everlasting life, that God is indeed doing all he can to draw these people I love to him. Now some of you are like me. You've been praying for years, maybe decades, and you have seasons where you begin to wonder, what's the use? Nothing's happening. Nothing's going on. Why do I keep on praying? Why do I keep hanging on to hope? Because of what we're talking about today. Think about this. Today I'm standing here to ask God to continually renew my hope. If you know that someone can do something that you can't, what do you do? Do you lament that you can't do it? No. You ask. You ask. And you ask again and again. I'm standing to ask God to help me persevere in prayer. To keep doing whatever little things he prompts me to do, to play whatever small part he would have me play in the work that only he can do as he draws my loved ones along that path toward him. So as we close this morning, I'm going to ask if you'd like to pray with me for the gift of faith, for the gift of perseverance, in praying for those you desire to see come to Christ. If you can stand, stand where you are right now. If you can't stand, raise your hand and pray to the Lord with me as we close. Heavenly Father, first we want to thank you for the amazing gift that salvation in Christ truly is. That before there was time, before the foundation of the world, Lord, that you chose those of us who are in Christ to be your children, to be redeemed, to be saved, Father. And we are grateful for that. We pray that we would never lose sight of these great truths, Lord, and that these truths would bring to us daily the joy of our salvation. And Father, that in the joy of our salvation, we would have faith in you. And Lord, we would be able to persevere. And we think now, many of us think right now of that person or those persons for whom we have been praying for years and years or even decades that you would draw them. So we don't quit, Father. We continue to pray because only you can do this, Lord. No one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws them and we recognize the truth of this reality. We pray, Heavenly Father, that by your Holy Spirit you would help us to be uh, faithful and persevering in praying for these to do the thing that only you can do in that life of the person we love that we know needs to come to Christ. So we commit these things to you now, Father, and ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us and give us faith, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.